Okay, great. So you know what? We'll begin. Let's talk about Purim. Uh, first of all, I love Purim because I'm an Adar baby. I was born Rosh Chodesh Adar. That's the real reason that you're supposed to increase your joy on Adar, because that's when I was born. So I'm, you know, I'm humble about it, but uh, you should just know the day I was born, everybody said Hallel. And so I was born on uh, Rosh Chodesh Adar Bet. So my birthday only happens every four years. That's why I look so young. And um, so, but um, what's interesting about Adar is the zodiac of Adar is two fish. It's Pisces. I'm a Pisces. It's two fish going in opposite directions. And it is the only zodiac that has a contradiction. You have Gemini. Any Geminis here? Okay, you don't have to admit it. Uh, so uh, Gemini is two, but they're standing next to each other. But, but uh, Pisces are two fish going in opposite directions. And Pisces really is paradoxical. Um, and, and that's really what Purim is about. Purim is about paradox. And I call this partying our way you know, from paradox to paradise. So let's talk about what that paradox is and what the paradise is and, and the party. That's the most important part of it all is the party. Purim has some very uh, strange customs attached to it. Some that make total sense, but some that make no sense at first glance anyways. Uh, it makes sense that we would read Megillah to Esther because that's the story, so that makes sense. It would make sense that we would eat because you know, that's Jewish history. They tried to kill us. They failed. So let's eat. So that's uh, a Jewish thing to eat. But then there's things that just make no sense. Like, why would we get drunk on Purim? Getting drunk is not a particularly Jewish thing to be doing. And yet it's a mitzvah to be getting drunk on Purim. That, uh, that's, uh, it's just so not Jewish. Although I understand that uh, college students prepare for that mitzvah all year long, uh, getting drunk for Purim. So I guess it's a, it, it's a custom that went over well. Uh, but also getting dressed up, like, you know, it's the Jewish Halloween. Why are we getting dressed up? Uh, we're giving shlach manot. We're giving food to people. Again, well, I mean, why can't I do that on Hanukkah? Why, why, what, what makes Purim so unique? That's that the sages said that we should be giving shlach manot and then matanat evyonim to give to the poor. It's always great to give to the poor. What is it about Purim? Maybe because it's called Purim. But uh, what's it about Purim that um, we should be giving to the poor? And then we have a tradition that is really crazy, Hamantashen. You know, I think to myself, imagine a non-Jewish person walks into a kosher bakery and there is some Hasidic family with 3,000 children and they order, you know, 9,000 Hamantashen. And this non-Jewish fellow is intrigued by this pastry, this uh, triangular pastry, and and he says, wow, that looks really good. Um, well, what is that? And, uh, and, the, and the baker says, well, it's called hamantashen, uh, which means Haman's hat or Haman's ears. And uh, because we had an enemy by the name of Haman who tried to annihilate the entire Jewish people, he failed. And so we celebrate that by eating a pastry that looks like his ears. Like, come on, <laughs> like, come on, like, you must be joking. Like, like someday we're going to have chocolate Hitler mustaches. Like, what, what are we doing? What is, what is this holiday about? And so let's talk about what, what, what we're really celebrating on Purim. Yom Purim 
is considered to be the day where the truth of Hashem's oneness, which we call Einod Milvado, nothing but Hashem, is, um, is revealed. It's on a higher level than Yom HaKippurim, the day which is like Purim. HaKippurim is the day that's like Purim, but it doesn't quite make it to Purim. Purim is the day where the truth of Hashem's oneness is most manifest, even more so than Yom HaKippurim. And, uh, and hopefully we'll get a chance to explore what connection is there between those two holidays at all. They don't seem to have anything to do with each other. Um, so, well, what do, what do we mean when we say God is one and how does Purim make manifest that truth? So most of us uh, were taught, and many of us still believe, that there is one God and that that is a primary principle of Jewish teachings, that there is one God, and of course, that's the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Shem Elokein, Shem Echad. Here, O Israel, the O Israel was the uh, Irish uh, Nusach, the here, O Israel, uh, is the Irish Nusach, but I don't know where the O came from, but the here, O Israel, God is one. And so there is one God. Uh, but that's not really what we've been saying all along when you when you really explore the meaning of the Shema, if we wanted to say there was one God, we should have said Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad. Here, Israel, God, there's one God. But we're not saying that. We're saying here, Israel, God, our God, God is one. The truth is that we don't believe that there, somewhere over there, is a single being called God. We believe that God is one. Um, and there's a big difference between saying there is one God and saying God is one. It's very, very different. There is one God is basically saying that there are categories. Uh, there's the category of human beings, and there there's a few billion of us that got into that category. Then there's the category of uh, insects. Oh, my gosh, billions and billions and billions got into that category. But then there's the category of gods. And only one God got into that category. And nobody can get into that category. There's only one God that got into the category. That's what most people think means that we are saying that there is one God. But we're not saying there wasn't one God. We're saying God is one. We're not saying that God is the one God in the category of gods, but there are other categories. We're saying there's nothing but God. There is absolutely nothing but God. And uh, where, does that, where does that leave us? Uh, does that make us an illusion? Uh, I once heard uh, Woody Allen say, the comedian, you know, if we're illusions, then I definitely pay too much for that Persian rug. So uh, are we illusions? No, we're not illusions. Okay, then are we God? No, guess again. Well, so what are we? Well, we're not God, and yet there's nothing but God, which means that even though we're not God, we exist within God, we are a part of God, and we don't have a separate independent existence. We are to God like a baby is to the womb of her mother. The baby's not the mother, but the baby exists within the mother. The baby is a part of the mother. The baby has no independent existence separate from the mother. And therefore, it wouldn't really be correct to say there's two here because the baby is a part of the mother. And that's actually the meaning of the name yud Hey vav Hey. The name yud Hey vav Hey. Uh, is saying that God is existence, that God is all there ever was, is, and ever will be. There is nothing but God. And that name is identified with the attribute of Rachamim, 
And the attribute of Rachamim comes from the word Rechem, which means womb. Rachamim is unconditional love, and womb is a womb. What do they got to do with each other? God loves us like a mother loves her unborn child that's within her, a part of her, although still not her. And, uh, and that is our connection to God. Um, so whereby there is one God means over there in heaven, there's one God and we're over here on earth. God is one is this nothing but God. We exist within God. We're a part of God. And yet we're not God. You know, I, I tried this out on my son when he was a little boy to see how he would handle this. It's a bit abstract. And he was maybe five years old. And I asked him, I, I said, Nuriel, where is Hashem? And he pointed as far as he could with his hand. He said, Bashamayim in heaven. And I said, and where are you and I? And he went, we're down here on earth. I said, well, you know, that's actually not quite right. We believe that you've, you've heard that song, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. And, uh, and we believe that we exist within Hashem. Um, and my son was shocked by that. And I said, uh, do, do you get that? And he thought about it, and he thought about it. And then suddenly his eyes grow wide and he says, whoa, whoa, I get it. I really get it. He's five years old. I said, you really get it? He said, oh, yeah, I get it. He said, wow, Hashem is so fat, you know? So now he's got Hashem floating in existence, and we're in the belly of Hashem. Hashem is not in existence. That's why atheists are right. When an atheist says, I don't believe there's a God in existence, they're right. There is no God in existence because God is existence and infinitely more than even that. We're in existence. We're in God. That's why there's a passage that says, I rejoice in God. When I realize that I exist within God, that I'm a part of God, although not God, then uh, I'm always in the right place because God is the space and the place of the universe. You know, it's interesting how New Age have kind of, not kind of, they've substituted God with universe. They talk about the universe. Jim Carrey uh, did a speech where he talks about his successes based on how he prays to the universe and how the universe cares and the universe wants to help you. And why is it that New Age is drawn to and comfortable with talking about universe rather than God? Uh, there's something they're intuiting to be somewhat correct because most people's understanding of God is very exclusive. He's over there, we're over here. There's an infinite distance between us and every step towards the infinite leaves you infinitely far away. And it's a pretty depressing, you know, uh, venture to reach God. So, but the universe suggests that uh, that it it, accompany, it accommodates us, it embraces us, it supports us, it includes us, and therefore the New Age idea of God, instead of being God, but the universe, is actually much closer to the Jewish understanding of God. It's still not quite right, but, but they're in a good direction because they're looking for an understanding of God that includes us and we are a part of rather than apart from. Okay, what has it got to do with Purim? Well, just about everything, because what this has to do is how it affects the relationship between free choice and God's control of the universe. If we exist within God, that means no matter what choice we make, it will always be within the context of God's being and God's will and God's purpose. 
And that's a mystery. I'm not God. I have free choice. I can choose to do other than God's will. But the mystery is no matter how I, whatever choice I make, it will always serve God's purpose. Always serves God's purpose. My choice will always be within the context of God. And, um, and how does that play out in the Purim story? Well, that's what's interesting about the Purim story. There's no outright miracles. It's not like the Passover story where God is depicted as a single being who's contending with Pharaoh and flexing his divine muscles and demonstrating to Pharaoh, I can do miracles and I can put you down because you're not God. But still, it, it, it does appear like God has to reckon with this man. But the interesting thing about Purim is God's name isn't even in the isn't even in the um, the Megillah, because Purim is a higher manifestation of the truth of God's oneness. That God is so one, God doesn't have to cope with our choices, doesn't have to contend with the criminals, doesn't have to get involved at all, because no matter what choice you make, it'll all serve my purpose, and that's what happened. Haman is allowed to make every choice he wants, and he goes ahead and he starts planning out the entire elimination of the Jewish people, and he builds a gallow to hang Mordechai, and everything he does to destroy the Jewish people ends up saving us because we were in a bad shape. We were assimilating big time. The Jewish people were really thrilled that they were invited to the party of the king. He was serving glut kosher food. They were finally being accepted and they were assimilating. And, um, and Haman, everything he did to destroy us, actually jump-started the redemption of the Jewish people going back to the land of Israel. And it was all him. He did it. And nobody got in his way. He's just allowed to carry out his plans. And yet somehow, without any obvious divine intervention whatsoever, it all works out for the best. And that's the amazing thing. We see the same theme going on with, um, in, in, in Judaism in general. For instance, the story of the brothers of Joseph. The brothers of Joseph had decided that Joseph is a threat to the future of the Jewish people. He's an up-and-coming tyrant and we need to get rid of him, he's a danger. So they decide to sell him as a slave. And this was all their plan to undermine and stop his dreams. But actually they became the conduit to fulfill his dreams. Again, the same kind of irony of someone making a free choice and yet it's serving the divine destiny. Uh, same thing with uh, the rabbis tell us that Pharaoh was informed by his astrologist that uh, the Messiah of the Jewish people is going to be born. And they could astrologically see that the downfall of the Messiah of the Jewish people would be water, which was, it was the hitting of the rock for Moses, but they didn't have that kind of precision. They just knew that his downfall had to do with water. So they advised him that they, he should throw all the Jewish boys into the Nile. He wasn't interested in killing all the Jewish boys. He was just kill, interested in killing the Messiah of the Jewish people. And uh, so he would kill every single Jewish boy to get that one boy. Well, what happened was, is the astrologist told Pharaoh that the Messiah has been thrown into the Nile. Again, they don't have accuracy. They don't know that he's in a little boat. And, uh, and sure enough, who comes walking by and finds this little Jewish baby in the reeds is the very daughter of Pharaoh. She brings him home. Pharaoh knows that he's a Jewish boy. Who, who's leaving their kids in the Nile these days? you know, for a swim, 
And, uh, and he actually raises the Messiah of the Jewish people. He actually gives the Messiah of the Jewish people, Moses, a royal upbringing. And again, it's this irony where nobody gets involved and somehow it all works out in the best interest. Well, so this is exactly what Mordechai says to Esther. Mordechai is going to persuade Esther that she should take a risk on her life and go to the king and petition the king on behalf of her people to save the Jewish people from destruction. She says to Mordechai, well, I haven't been invited for already a month now. You can't just show up to the king. If you go uninvited, you could be killed. You know, that's a crime. So Mordechai says something that makes no sense whatsoever. He says, well, if you don't do it, the salvation of the Jewish people will come from somewhere else. Now, that is such a not Jewish way to talk. Where's the guilt? You know, like guilt the lady, guilt her, guilt her. You know, tell her that if you don't do it, this is the end of the Jewish people. You're the only one that can do it. He doesn't say that. He says, you're not the only one who can do it. God has many, many agents. He has many ways of saving the Jewish people. That's a done deal. God is going to save the Jewish people. The question is, will you get the role? Do you want to get a starring role? Do you want to play the part? And she says, yes. And that goes back to the idea of the relationship between free choice and determinism. We do have free choice. And we can choose to do what God wants, or we can choose to do other than God wants. But mysteriously, no matter what choice we make, our choices will serve God's purpose and plans. And so the obvious question is, then what is the significance of our choices? What difference do our choices make? Our choices won't make a difference to history. History is his story. It's God's story. And that's a done deal. That's a written story. It'll make a difference to our story. Because the choices you make don't determine what happened outside of you. The choices you make determine what happens inside of you. The choices you make don't, don't determine what ends up being done. The choices you make determines on defining who you are. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? First of all, um, what is the parameters of our choice anyways? A person, God forbid, could decide to kill somebody. So they get themselves a gun. They wait for their victim. They pull the trigger. Trigger jams. Oh, maybe they pull the trigger. No bullet. Pull the trigger. There is a bullet, but it's a dud. Pull the trigger. Victim moves. Everything after the choice is completely in God's hands. There are infinite possibilities that could happen after you made the choice. Your choice doesn't determine the results of the choice but your choice does determine how you perceive yourself, how you perceive yourself. You see, it says in the Gemara and the Talmud, all is in the hands of heaven and by the hands of heaven, except reverence. Meaning there's really only one choice in our lives. Are we choosing the way of reverence or are we choosing the way of irreverence? But what happens is in the hands of God. That's completely a hand of God. Now, what difference does the choice make? It makes all the difference in the world. Do you define yourself as an irreverent person or you define yourself as a reverent person? Let me put it this way. For those of you that are married, let's say your spouse asks you to do the dishes. Okay, here are your choices. The first thing is, no, I'm not going to do the dishes. Who are you to control me? You're not me. I'm not you. 
and I can do whatever I want to do. And I know what this is all about. You're trying to subordinate make me and make me into your schmata. You know, uh, you know what a schmata is. It's a, it's a French cologne. So you're trying to make me into a schmata. Okay, that's one choice. You could go that way. Don't, don't recommend it. But you could go that way. Or you could go another way. Okay, okay, okay. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. I'll do the dishes. I'll even scrub the floor. Okay, okay, okay. And complete surrender. You know, because I have no free choice. My spouse, you know, controls me. That's not the right way to go, too. The right way to go is to say, hey, me and my spouse are one, but we're not one and the same. Although I'm not my spouse, I am one with my spouse. Because I'm not my spouse, I have free choice and I could say no and I could say yes. But because we're one, why would I say no? Why would I say no? Of course, I'll say yes. So I choose to say yes, okay? If a person knows that God is one and we're one with God, why would I choose to say no? It's only because I'm under the illusion of my ego, which stands for editing God out, E-G-O, uh, that's telling me that God is not part of my life and I'm not part of God and there's this separation. Maybe there isn't a God at all and I can just do whatever I feel like doing. But... If I know that God is one and I'm one with God, although not God, but I'm like that baby within the womb of the mother, why would the baby do something against its mother or her mother, his mother? Why? It's ridiculous. It's just totally ridiculous. That's the point. Whenever you make a choice that is irreverent, it is basically reinforcing the lie of your ego that you are a separate entity set apart from independent, self-sufficient, and disconnected from God. And maybe there isn't even God at all. And that is your hell. You are making choices that are reinforcing a state of alienation and estrangement from God, from the, the very ground context and, context and essence of your being. But when you choose to do the will of God, but not from a, a simple place of surrender, but you, you know that you could choose other, but you choose to do the will of God. You're reinforcing the truth that God is one. You're not God, but you're one with God and you choose to do the will of God. And that is really what choices are all about. So now let's go to, uh, and it's a paradox. I have free choice. I really do have free choice. And yet no matter what choice I make, it'll serve God's purpose. And so the obvious question is, well, then what difference will the choice make? No difference to God, but all the difference to you. Your choices are defining how you perceive yourself. Do you see yourself as part of God or do you see yourself as apart from God? And that will be your heaven and hell. Okay, well, so then uh, what's that got to do with getting drunk on Purim? Well, getting drunk on Purim is we're supposed to get drunk to the point that we, in a drunken state, say Baruch Haman. Blessed be Haman. Now, why would we want to get so drunk and bless Haman? Because what we're realizing that even Haman is going to serve God's purpose. He was a source of blessing in our life. And the oral tradition says that the praise of God emerges from heavens, from the saints, and from hell, from the evil. Even the evil people are contributing to the praise of God. But why are they in hell? Because they don't want to be contributing to that. They chose to do very much the opposite of that. And yet, even nonetheless, they ended up serving God. That's their punishment. The punishment of Haman is that he sees a little Jewish kid making a bracha on a hamantashen and blessing this food and recognizing God 
and 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 realizing that I had every intention, says far says Haman, I had every intention of being a deadly poison to the Jewish people, and they turned me into a pastry. Every time we eat a hamantaj, the poor guys in hell. That I helped the Jewish people, everything I tried to do to destroy them, actually served them, saved them. And that's his hell. And that's Hamantashen. That something turned around. That here is a man who chose to be poison, but God turned him into a pastry. And he doesn't want to be a pastry. You know, he wants to be poison. That's his punishment. That's his hell. And so we get drunk on pouring because we're going to go beyond the either or. Because the either or is either I have free choice or all is foreseen and God's plan is set in, set in stone. And the answer is it's beyond either or. Mark Twain once said that maybe you didn't make a bad choice. Maybe you just have poor imagination that there was a third choice that you didn't even consider. And there is a third choice in our tradition that transcends the either or a free choice versus determinism. We don't understand it. Our logical minds can't wrap around it. Uh, you got to be drunk to get, to, to get out of your rational mind that believes that it's either free choice or determinism. Practically, how this works is before you make the choice, it's all free choice. Once you make the choice and the results are in, it's all God's plan. And you can't play both sides of the tennis court at the same time. Before you make the choice, you're in the world of complete free choice. Once you make the choice and whatever happened, happened, you look back at it and you say, okay, well, that was God's plan. Okay, so then why should I do tshuva? You know, why, why should I do tshuva? So there's a story about a fellow that steals a car. He's in court. The judge says, what is your plea? He says, I am innocent, sir. I am innocent, judge. <laughs> How could you say you're innocent? You were caught in the car, driving the car. I can't even believe you would even think we're that stupid. You know, you, you, how could you say you're innocent? He says, no, judge, you got to hear the whole story. The whole story. It's like this. Listen, I'm walking down the street. This guy parks his car. Policeman comes up to him. I overhear the conversation. He says to the guy, sir. This is a very dangerous neighborhood. I guarantee you, you park your car here, it'll be stolen. Well, you know what? The guy didn't listen. He didn't listen. So I took the car. So the judge said, so you took the car? I said, yeah, so I'm innocent. He said, no, you're not innocent. He said, judge, the car would have been stolen anyways. And the judge says, you're right. The car would have been stolen anyways, but you volunteered to do the job. That means you volunteered to go to jail for it. Okay. So yeah, you have free choice. And what relationship do you have to the consequences of the free choice? If God chooses you to be the conduit for that kind of a consequence, then you, you have to take that in consideration. What does this have to do with Yom Kippurim? Again, everything. How can I do tshuva? How can I hope to get atonement on Yom Kippurim? I made a bad choice and very bad results came from it. And if I could change that, and fix that, I will do that, but there are things that I might have done that can't be fixed, can't turn back time. So how can I hope to be atoned for something that I did that is irreparable? And it goes back to the same principle. All is in the hands of heaven, except for the choice to be reverent. 
that's your department. There's two departments. Your department is the choice department. God's department is the consequence results department. If you do tshuva, if you regret that you made that choice and did whatever you can to repair whatever was damaged, but, but that maybe you couldn't, you couldn't repair it, but if you regret that choice, then God says on me, I'm taking your name off this event. I'm taking your name. I'll give you an example, a real, a real example in our family. 20 years ago, mumish 20 years ago, this year, we just celebrated a month ago, my family was in a terrible, terrible car accident. I was in America at an Israelite retreat. My family was driving to my in-laws for Shabbat. A fellow got into his van. He, had slept, he did not sleep all night because he was learning Torah all night and did not yet buy challah for, 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 for Shabbos. He got into his car, very tired, fell asleep at the wheel. It was pouring rain. He lost control of the car because he's sleeping. The car flipped over. It was not a car, it was a van. It was spinning on its roof and went head-on collision into my brother-in-law's car. And serious, serious, terrible, terrible. The rumor in the old city where I live is that the entire family was killed. That's how bad an accident it was. Well, um, how do I feel about this guy? I mean, till today, there are people in the family that have handicaps because of this, uh, this, uh, this, this accident. How do I feel about this guy? How much anger do I, do I harbor against this guy? Zero. Zero. Why? First of all, he came and apologized to the entire family. Second of all, we got a big deal out of the insurance company. I'm just joking, right? The second of all is he came, he apologized. He did what he can do. It's all in God's hands. You see, his car went off the road and down and over the highway, and he didn't come out with a scratch. He didn't come out with a scratch. He walked out of his car. In the car of my brother-in-law, there were various, some kids, nothing. Some kids, significant. It could have hit somebody else's car. That was already God's plan. Right? It could, it's, that's already God's plan. So he did shuva. It's between him and God. And, and that's it. I, I have no reason to feel angry at this guy because it's not my department. You know, he apologized to the family. I assume he did tshuva. I hope he will never make that foolish mistake and, and choose to get into his car when he's tired. And, uh, but that's it. That's it. That's Yom Kippurim. How am I able to face myself after what I did this year if there are things that I've done that cannot be repaired? The answer is, do tshuva, repent on the choice that you made. I made an irreverent choice. I regret that choice. I don't want to ever do that choice again. I accept upon myself to never make those choices again. And if I'm sincere about that and I repair whatever is within my capacity to repair, let go, go on, right? You know, when I was taught how to drive, my driving teacher told me that the only time you take a look back is when you're moving forward. If, you, if looking back doesn't help you move forward, don't look back. Don't look back. Okay, and a lot of people are stuck in the past. They don't let the past pass. Just let it pass. You did tshuva. You regretted the choice. You opt for a life that is 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 as a, a choice and with the desire to to live the will of God. So a couple more things, and then I'll open the floor for any questions that you have. 
So why do we do shlach monas? You see, the, the oneness of God is like the oneness of love. Love includes someone who's not you, and yet we're one. And that's the mystery of love. You know, it's a pasuk. One plus one equals one. It's a pasuk from Pete Townsend from the, the rock band, The Who. Uh, anybody, did I just date myself? Here, I just did Hester Bunny. Um, one plus one equals one. Somehow, some of us get it. Some of us get it. Some of us get it. Okay. Nobody knows who the who is. Okay. All right. You know, Pete Townsend is still playing. You know, never. So um, the idea is this. The oneness of Hashem is like the oneness of love. The oneness of love is a oneness that includes other. There's a significant other who's not me. And yet we're one. And that's the mystery. And so we celebrate oneness on this day. We celebrate oneness. We celebrate oneness by doing something that has to be done by giving to the poor. They need, you know, there's two ways of showing love. It's giving people what they need and giving people what they don't need. You know, for instance, if it's your birthday, you know, you don't want your mother or your spouse to buy you a pair of socks. You know, like you need a pair of socks for your birthday. You want somebody to buy you something you don't need. But if, you're, if your beloved only gives you things you don't need and doesn't know what to give you that you do need, that's a problem. Love is giving people what they need and also giving people what they don't need but would like to have. And so it's really a holiday of celebrating love and we get dressed up on Purim because we're going to become someone we're not. We're going to include within our identity someone that's not us. And that's what it means to love. That's what it means to love. And Haman, at the very beginning of the story, without understanding this, revealed the secret of why he's going to fail. He didn't understand this. He says to Achashrei Rosh, there's one people that are scattered and set apart, and we can destroy them. But wait a second. If they're one people, how could they still be one people if they're scattered and and spread out and, and set apart from each other? How could they be one people? That's what is amazing about the Jewish people. We are scattered and spread out. We're the only religion that has a holy book that records disputes. We see disputes as something holy. We see disputes as not an enemy to love, but the very ingredient of love. When you love somebody, you can agree, you can disagree, you can agree to disagree. That's the amazing thing of love between us, that we're one people, we're 12 tribes, and everybody knows the story about this Jew that was found on a, on, a, um, on a desert island. This guy has been on a desert island for 10 years. Finally, they discover the guy. They says, well, how was life on this desert island? He says, no, you know, not so bad. I actually had two synagogues. They said, two synagogues on a desert island? And what do you need two synagogues for? He says, well, one I go to and one I would never go to. Every Jew needs two synagogues. And then there's a joke about the new rabbi. The new rabbi comes into the shul. It's, it's Mariv. They're going to say Shema. Half the shul gets up to say the Shema. Half the shul sits down to say the Shema. They start screaming at each other. Sit down, sit down. It's the Shema. The other one says, no, no, stand up, stand up. It's the Shema. Rabbi never saw anything like it. They're yelling at each other about the Shema. Are you supposed to sit or are you supposed to stand? So the next day, Shachris comes. The same thing happens. They're about to say Shema. Half the shul sits down, half the shul gets up. They start screaming at each other, get up, sit down, get up, sit down. 
he goes to one of the um the, to, to one of the uh, members he says what's going on here like what's the tradition if who's a founding member here that can tell us the founding tradition he says there's only one surviving founder and he's in a moship skanim he's in an elderly home we can go see him and ask him what is the tradition of the shul so the rabbi picks for himself a delegate that's going to represent the standards he gets a delegate that's going to represent the sitters and he brings them to Mr. Schwartz. They got to Mr. Schwartz, the man's in his 90s. He said, Mr. Schwartz, we have a problem here. I've brought two representatives and they're going to, they're going to present to you. So the standard, the rep of the standard gets up and says, Mr. Schwartz, is it not true that the tradition of the shul is that we stand when we say the Shema? Mr. Schwartz says, nope, that was not our tradition. Ha ha, says the sitter. So Mr. Schwartz, then it's true that our tradition is we would sit for the Shema. Mr. Schwartz would say, no, that was not our tradition either. Well, the rabbi says, Mr. Schwartz, I need your help. Every day they're screaming at each other. He said, ah, that was our tradition. You know, that was our tradition. Our tradition is, you know, I remember a fellow came to visit from the East. He'd spend a Jewish guy spending years in the East meditating on a mountain reaching levels of nirvana and enlightenment. And he came to Jerusalem, he asked to see what does Judaism have to offer him? And they took him to our sacred sanctuary, the Beit Midrash. And what did he see? Not people sitting and meditating, not a place of silence, people yelling and arguing and dispute. And he couldn't understand what could be holy about that. Because what's holy about that is it's a place of love. That when you really love somebody, you can argue. And it not only undermine, doesn't undermine your love, it only enhances the fact that you're not me and I'm not you, but we're still one. We're still one. So Purim is a celebration of the oneness of God. We don't believe there is one God. We believe God is one. There's none but the one. We are someone, some of that one. We're not God. We exist within God. We're a part of God. And the application of that in terms of this holiday is the relationship, the paradoxical relationship between free choice and determinism. We're not God and we have free choice, but there's nothing but God and his purpose will be served no matter what. And so what difference will our choices make? All the difference to us and those around us. Who do we define ourselves to be? Do we define ourselves to be at one with God or do we define ourselves to be at odds with God? Are we making choices that reinforces our connection or reinforces our perception of disconnection? And that will be the hell and heaven that we create for ourselves. Thank you very much. Happy Purim. And I'd be happy to uh, try and address your questions. So you can unmute yourselves. Rabbi, you spoke about Yom Kippur. Um, can you explain if there's a connection between Shuva? and Purim? Uh, well, because the power of tshuva is that you can take back your choices and you don't have to deal with the department of consequences. That is, that is the connection. You know, the, the, the idea of what's interesting about uh, Purim also, I'm glad you brought that up, is one of the things that we mentioned on Purim is the Jewish people re-embraced Judaism, but from a place of total freedom. At the giving of Torah at Sinai, they didn't really feel they could say no because, you know, the presence of God was so overwhelmingly obvious. How could they say no? So did they really, really ex exhibit 
complete free choice, where they experience themselves not God and free to say no to God, but freely chose to say yes to God. But here, because the presence of God was hidden, and one could easily say all this was just an interesting coincidence and there is no God, that's when we are at the forefront of the story is free choice. We are now completely freely choosing to embrace the will of God, which is an even greater statement of love. When you love somebody, you choose to do what they ask you to do from a place of freedom and not because you're afraid and not because you're hoping to get something in return. It's of course, of course, if this is what you want, then I freely choose to want what you want. Thank you. Any more questions or comments? Wonderful share. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, Rabbi. Baruch Hashem. Great to see you all. Wow. What amazing technology. It's not the same as seeing people live, but it's still better than, you know. Rabbi, I have a question. Yes, who's speaking? Michael Epstein, my grandson, is uh, went to Orita. Right, okay. Yes. You mentioned that uh, when Mordechai asked Esther to intervene on behalf of the Jews, he he says if you if you don't if you don't it'll come from another source. He also says and you will be destroyed. I think something to that effect. He does. He says you and your your father's home will be destroyed. He does. She has to what know. Is, that, what, that what, does what does that mean? What does that mean? It means you're a Jew like all of us. You're a Jew like all of us. Don't think because you're the queen, somehow you are going to be saved by this. Don't, don't think that. Don't think that. But the interesting thing, he does say that. But the interesting thing is, why bring up that salvation will come from somewhere else? Yes. It's just like, it just weakens your point. Because yeah. that's the truth. You know, a person has to understand, you know, let's say a person says, I love football. I love football so much. I'm always make sure to see the scores the next day. I'm, I'm sorry, that's not loving football. Another guy said, well, I love football more than that. I listen to the game over the radio. Oh, come on, that's not football. I love football much more than that. I listen to the radio outside, right outside the stadium so I can hear the roar of the crowd. Oh, come on. I love football because I buy tickets. I've got great binoculars. I get the cheapest tickets. It's the last row, but I got great binoculars. No, no, I'm sorry. I love football because I pay front row seats. I'm right next to the field. I'm sorry. If you love football, you're on the field. That's what it means to be a Jewish person. This is really what Mordechai is saying to her. You want to be a spectator? You want to be an extra on the set? Or do you want to be a player? That's the question. Do we want to be a player? We are in the midst of the redemption of the Jewish people. These are tough times. And we were told that in the times of the Shiach, it's going to be tough. There were rabbis that said that they hope they won't have to be in these times because we were told there will be very, very painful times right before Mashiach comes. Question is, are we just going to be spectators? Are we going to wait to see the news? You know, New York Times, the Messiah came, Jewish people going home. Or do we want to contribute and be, you know, and be active participants in the story? That's really the ultimate question is, do we just want to sit back and watch or do we want to be participants? I have another question. Sure, please. Uh, when, Esther, when Esther comes to Rachel uninvited 
to beg for to rescind the letters. You would think that the thing she would do is ask him to rescind the letters, but instead she asked him to have a party. Right. Well, so, then, what's going on here? Well, didn't she, didn't she take a chance that she won't be able to have another session with him? Uh, you know what? Uh, interesting. Um, I, I would recommend there is a really brilliant shear from Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson on the psychological background of the Purim story. And he really presents a beautiful understanding of, of, of the personalities of Chashverosh and Haman and how Esther understood psychologically how to play this whole thing out. And basically you're talking about a king and this is his, his understanding and I thought it was really brilliant and really appreciated it. Uh, that, uh, that you're talking about, you know, evil people are neurotic and they're narcissistic and she played them, they, she played them into a point where she trapped them both into realizing what was going on. So more than that, I recommend you can find it on, on YouTube. Uh, Thank you, Rabbi. My wife, Jacobson. It's really a brilliant shiur. Thank you. Any more questions or comments? Uh, Rabbi uh, Bob Friedman, I just want to thank you so much. It's wonderful and so interesting to hear the holiday put in the framework of the real mamish, the base, the base, the base of Yiddishkeit. And uh, thank you so much. I'm grateful. Well, thank you. I want you all to know that Bob Friedman and Sarah Friedman were the first major donors to Israelite that really jump-started everything I do. So uh, whatever I do, thanks to, to, to Bob and Sarah. Any more questions or comments? I just, posted, I just posted the YY class, YY Jacobson. For those oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Yeah, really great class. Okay, thank you so much. Happy, happy, happy parade. Thank you. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Be well.